Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is a DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. Today, DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast features Laura Prescott. Laura is the president and founder of Sister Witness International Incorporated. She also serves on the advisory board of Mental Disability Rights International and was formerly on the board of the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy. Laura has spoken nationwide on such topics as self-inflicted violence, lawyering for discredited women, and re-traumatization of abuse survivors in the psychiatric system. She has served as a consultant for the Office of Mental Health in New York, the Department of Mental Health and Retardation in Maine, the Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law, the National Institute of Corrections, and the National Women's Resource Center. Welcome, Laura. We are so pleased to have you with us as our guest today. Now, thanks for asking me, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, to start us off, I'm hoping you might share with our listeners uh, more about your background and what brought you to this field and the organization you founded, Sister Witness International. Sure, um, I'd be happy to do that. I always like to start out by talking a little bit about uh, my personal experience because it frames um, what I do today and the context uh, for what I'll do in the future. Um, My background is as a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. My personal experiences taught me to turn inward and away from the world. I heard voices that kept me company and became these silent witnesses to things that were happening in my life that were, were unspeakable. As an adult, I was given a variety of diagnoses and I began being shuffled from hospital to hospital. And I found that in those places, people didn't ask me, what happened to you? Sure. The presumption was that they, once I was there and diagnosed, that they would make um, a judgment about what was going on uh, for me. And I began to disappear. Uh, the less people asked me what had happened and asked me what was wrong with me, the more I disappeared behind my eyes. Eventually, I ran away from the psychiatric system and I got a job, ironically working with the State Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts. And my first assignment was, ironically, to go back to a hospital where uh, I had run away, Mm. my last hospital. Uh, That's amazing. (laughs) Quite a coincidence. (laughs) Isn't it? Yes. It it was really quite an experience, Um, and actually one that was important in that it, it changed the course of my life. It was a hospital where I had been in restraint quite a bit, and when I went back to that facility, and this was in the mid-90s, uh, I began to realize almost immediately that no one comes back into those facilities. Uh, when I went back, uh, people, the same people I'd been on the unit with came up and they kept touching me and they, were, they said, you know, how do you do this? And where have you been? And I began to realize that um, no one comes back. And if they do, they come back on a gurney or on a stretcher. They don't come back um, being involved in their own lives with a story about recovery or faith or hope or uh, skills to teach people about, you know, how to, how to have a life. Sure. 
So that was really a turning point in my life, um, was that was that event. And I knew that if someone had visited me in those facilities and those places where my pain was so quickly turning into despair, um, that it would have made a huge difference. And um, if someone had made time to, to ask questions and listen for the answers, um, I think my life would have taken a, a different turn a lot earlier. And so um, that became the focus of my life. I knew that that was my job here on this earth was sure. to meet people where they're at and uh, in their homes or in the streets or places where they work or congregate and to, to really um, be a part of a, a large cadre of, of people who are out there now trying to pass on the message that recovery is possible. Um, and that's the promise of, of this peer movement I think we're a part of. And it's also the central organizing uh, principle of Sister Witness International uh, was to focus on the voices of women and girls who have been trans-institutionalized in our society, um, who are so often the last to have an opportunity to speak up to say, I am, I'm here, um, I have a story to tell about my life, and the stories that they tell are so similar um, around the globe. So today I, I'm real fortunate I get to visit people um, in institutional settings uh, in this country, and sometimes I get a chance to visit them overseas. This, this all ties really well into our, our topic today, and, and we're talking about uh, the impact of trauma and on, on the lives of people, uh, not, not just veterans, but all people who've been diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, even though we hear, hear a lot about trauma, I guess more than we used to, particularly since the tragedy of September 11th, I'm, I'm not sure that everybody listening to us today has a good working definition of what we mean by trauma, and I wonder if you could offer one in, in layman's terms. Sure. Um, I actually love to tell a story about um, trauma, the word to trauma. Uh, you know, when I was doing workshops uh, on, on all kinds of things, people, uh, one day somebody came into the workshop and um, we, we were in the middle of talking about uh, intimate violence, and somebody came into the workshop late and they had uh, gotten behind somebody in traffic and they ran into the workshop and they said, you know, I'm so sorry that I'm late. I'm so traumatized. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew in that moment that we really were talking about the same thing. Right. <laughs> uh, and, it, it's, and so it became really important to, to come up with a definition that we could all use as a working definition to sort of figure out what we really mean. Hmm. So I like to start with the definition provided by uh, Judith Herman in her book, Trauma and Recovery, which came out in, I think it was 
traffic yeah. incident or being late to drop off the kids to the babysitter. Mm-hmm. Um, traumatic events are things that disrupt your sense of connection, um, control, and meaning. And, and beyond they, just the day, it, it impacts your life. Your whole think. life. Right. It, I like to think of it as um, the central shattering that happens to people. Hmm. Um, it's, it's the central, when it happens, and often it isn't just one event, that's one of the things that we learned through the research, it isn't just one event generally that happens, um, although it can be, it's rare that it is. Hmm. It often involves many, many events, many traumatic events. Hmm. Um, and people describe it as it becomes then the central organizing factor in their lives. Wow. It fundamentally changes who they are and how they make meaning of their lives after that point. Sure. So that's a, that's a, um, a different thing than being frustrated, which we all often are, mm-hmm. with the various things that can happen to us during the day. Sure. And there's some outcomes of that, and they, those outcomes will depend on who you are. They depend on a whole host of variables from age to gender or culture, even a cultural understanding of the impact of the traumatic event. But some of those outcomes can include feelings of betrayal. People have described guilt. Or a lot of uh, veterans talk about survivor guilt problems with self-esteem or dissociation, uh, emotional numbing, feeling very far away. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think depression would be among those um, things as well. Absolutely. People will feel extremely sad um, and an unmitigated sadness and not know um, what to do. Often that uh, can be characterized as, as depression over time, and certainly a lot of anxiety, feeling and uh, sort of an unrelated, um, what feels unrelated, sense of um, hypervigilance or hyperarousal. Sure. Um, walking around, people walk around and touch things to, to see if they can control their environment or create rituals to control their environment. Oh. Okay. Well, that almost sounds similar to um, uh, an OCD, mm-hmm. uh, where you're, you're, you create rituals uh, to create comfort. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Absolutely. And in, in an attempt to, many of these are an attempt to reestablish control in your life oh. um, because your life has been, because you've been rendered helpless by this event, and so your life feels out of control. Sure. And so... Um, people will talk about developing eating disorders, which has to do, I think, with trying to control your body, um, oh. literally not being either t- able to take any more into your body physically um, or um, people feeling like they're, they're starving um, on the inside and so they're, they feed themselves in order to feel full mm. of something that they feel like they're missing. Exactly. So they're all attempts to cope with the sense of feeling um, out of control and helpless, uh, all these things. When we talk about uh, post-traumatic stress, Mm -hmm. um, all of this comes into play. And I I, I think about the 
the way post-traumatic stress is um, portrayed on, uh, say, for, for example, television, there's a whole host of, um, I don't know if the right word is symptoms, but manifestations of the conditions people experience, at least in, in common popular culture, uh, culture, vivid flashbacks, nightmares, perhaps acting out a past experience. Are these realistic portrayals of, of the outcome of, of PTSD or trauma? You know, that's, that's hard to say because I think that the outcomes of, of trauma are so individual and I think that how people experience their post, uh, post-traumatic stress is so individual as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it depends on who you are and your background and your exposure to traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very, post-traumatic stress is, is very common and much more common than we think that it is. And so those portrayals are, are one extreme end of mm. what people might see. So it's a spectrum. There is a spectrum. There's mm-hmm. a huge spectrum of how people experience um, this, this kind of distress. I wonder if you could define one end of the spectrum and the other. Kind of give us an example of what we're talking about in terms of, I don't know if the word is uh, extreme, and, then, and, uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, what are, are, the, what, what are we talking about here? Let me give you an idea, too, of how common this is among the population as well. That what we know, according to some statistics, depending on how it's gathered, but according to some experts, is that between 7 and 8% of the people in the U.S. will have PTSD in their lifetime. So it's pretty darn common. Mm-hmm. And some experts will say that 5 million people at any given time in the U.S. will have PTSD. Mm. Um, between 10 and 30% of rape victims and veterans experiencing will experience PTSD over the course of their lifetime, with women actually being more likely to experience it or develop it than men. Mm. And I mention that because a lot of the um, things that we see on television will portray men. Men, exactly. Um, having PTSD and not so much the women. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real hidden factor that we need to pay much more attention to, particularly as we see more women veterans coming back from um, having been involved in service, service overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, some common characteristics of, of trauma of leading to PTSD are um, people who've been pro- involved with prolonged traumatic exposure uh, that's severe in intensity or what um, some traumatic exposure that occurs in a series. Hmm. So things like being exposed to artillery or sniping or involved in what we see now where people who are serving where there is no front line overseas uh, so they can't withdraw and so they're constantly exposed to this high levels of stress and severe kinds of stress where no place uh, for them to stay. And if we take that away from the war front we may also be talking about a domestic violence type situation where say a spouse is, is under that kind of dress for years and years or, Absolutely. or months and months. Absolutely. And a lot of the children that we see that are exposed um, to high levels of violence in places or or living in neighborhoods that may be extremely unsafe. Mm. Um, So we see a lot of PTSD in children as well who are experiencing the same kinds of intensity. Sure, um, not not exactly the same, obviously, but there is a kind of... um, the chronic kind of 
kinds of intensity that people experience can lead to um, having PTSD. We know that interpersonal violence can lead more often to PTSD than natural disasters. Really? And I think that's a pretty interesting factor as well, yeah. Does that have something to do with maybe the longevity of the, the experience, whereas a natural disaster might be immediate? Uh, where the, the maybe a spousal situation or, or a bad neighborhood would be more chronic? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I have a theory that um, and that actually a gentleman uh, by the name of Jonathan Shea um, confirms. He, he writes that um, he finds that people will develop post-traumatic stress when they feel, there's another factor that I haven't mentioned here, um, a chronic sense of betrayal of what's right. Mm. Calls it a moral betrayal of what's right. Uh, he wrote a book called Achilles in Vietnam for people who are interested. That's really a very powerful book. Um, but I think that how that relates back to interpersonal violence is, I think we have a sort of belief system about what will happen in the world and when we believe that um, the people close to, to us will take care of us and provide a safety and that is betrayed, mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's more, like, more likelihood to develop um, a post-traumatic stress response. So you're internalizing, uh, and the, the word disappointment is too weak a word for what we're talking about here, but it's your own um, sense of right and wrong that is so uh, perhaps offended in a way, that it, it's, it's traumatic? I'm sorry. I think, it's, I think it's deeper. That's the right idea, but I think it's even deeper, deeper than, than that. Deeper than that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's when you have a whole belief system that's mm. undermined. I see. And if you believe fundamentally that the world is safe, Mm -hmm. um, and that people like your family members or the people that you know um, are people who provide that kind of safety mm -hmm. um, and you're brought up to believe that uh, and you find out that um, that's not the case and it's, it's true with veterans too they go over to, to fight and they believe that they're doing it for a certain cause and they may find out when they're over there that things are different than they were led to believe Certainly. there's a level of betrayal that happens there that's pretty deep and profound mm -hmm. and then they're in the midst of it trying to survive mm -hmm. and that can lead that very um, sense of deep betrayal of what's right and true and meaningful um, in the world as you characterize the world mm -hmm. um, can lead to post-traumatic well, you know, Laura, we, we've just barely scratched the surface uh, of this topic, and our time, unfortunately, is, is, is limited and almost up, and I, and I don't want to finish uh, without asking about recovery. What do people say uh, helps them heal from this type of experience or this kind of um, situation? You know, there's, again, I, I feel like I, I'm a little embarrassed. I said there's, there's no there's no particular answer to that, but sure. um, right, because recovery really is an individual process. Um, it's a journey. They talk about mostly people when they talk about recovery talk about the importance of it being a journey rather than an end. Um, they often ask, you know, when can, when can I get my my life back? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of this. It's been it's been a hard journey. What, you know, when can I when I can, when can I go back to quote normal? Mm -hmm. um, I know I certainly did that, but mm -hmm. then I came to realize over time that the 
power of what happened in my life really was life-altering, and there really was no going back. I had fundamentally changed. I wasn't the same person that I used to be, and nor are so many people who are impacted uh, by major trauma in their lives. So this recovery idea, um, as in to cover again, no longer meant going back, but it meant a process of uncovering what had happened, and trying to find meaning in that, uh, to make sense of it, and then to discover who could I be in the future, given sure. what had happened, um, as I grew through the crisis itself. Oh, very profound. It, it, it was to me because mm -hmm. I, the longer I tried to continue to go back to the way things were, the harder it was. <laughs> that, that, it's a matter of you needing to confront and, and, and deal with the underlying issue of what caused the, the tra trauma. Is that part of it? It was. Until you do that? It was for, um, for me. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a matter of um, looking at what had, what had happened um, mm -hmm. in my life and then taking steps to figure out, well, who do I want to be now? Right. This is what happened and um, how is it that I can reclaim who I am as the central director of my own life? How is it that I can come back from the margins of where I feel like I've been thrown? Mm -hmm. um, to become the central director of my life again, um, or maybe in some cases the first time. Uh, some people say to me, you know, I, I, I haven't been the central director of my life. I've always been on the outside of my life. That's how I feel, like following in somebody else's footsteps or not really um, defining who I am. And this is, you know, strangely enough, uh, because it sounds, it's very painful, obviously, um, when traumatic stuff happens, it's very painful. But ironically, it's also a chance to, um, through the crisis, to create um, who you'll become, to create becoming a different person. Sure. And that can be a, a really positive thing. Certainly. And people talk about, most profoundly, they talk about certain characteristics of recovery and being, being heard, being believed. They talk about hope as an essential part of um, recovery. Having enough hope to even embark on that journey is incredibly key, and I'm not sure people um, are aware of that enough, how much of a difference you can make in the life of somebody if you can hold out hope for them when That's they can't. Very fundamental. To hope for themselves. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think that's why peer support is so key as well, because meeting people who have been there mm -hmm. um, and who can help folks um, identify what helps and what hurts ahead of the crisis mm -hmm. so that they can stay in control of their own lives and avoid re-traumatization. Can I stand out as an example of that a recovery is possible? Absolutely. That's very, very uh, impactful. Yeah. It, it's, um, I think... I wish I had um, met more people in my own life early on uh, who had been able to come into those systems just to, to be an example of exactly that. And I know that there are a number of people who um, are doing that today and have developed tools for folks to um, help them 
sure, in control of their own lives, and um, and it's very, it's real powerful. One of those folks is um, somebody who will be co-facilitating this workshop with me, a guy who's terrific, whose name is uh, Walter Hudson, who's a U.S. military veteran and DBSA facilitator. And he's helped um, tailor the RAP, something called RAP, mm-hmm. Wellness Recovery Action Plan, yes. developed by Mary Ellen Copeland. He's helped develop, develop or tailor that for veterans and people in the military. And he'll be leading people through this process at the um, conference workshop uh, on what he has done, how it came about, and how to develop a, a recovery um, action plan. He's, he's done some great work. Yes, he has. You know, he's also a, a DBSA um, um, peer specialist, so ah. very highly regarded here. And the two of you will be doing a session or a workshop at our national conference in Norfolk. Uh, and I think you just whet the appetite of, of all of our listeners, uh, telling us a little bit about it. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what you and Walter have planned for um, your workshop? Sure, absolutely. Well, in, in brief, some of the goals for that day are going to be to understand the impact of trauma, to explore the ideas about recovery and, and peer support. How can peers who have been through these experiences come together and help one another, as well as to develop proactive skills to help people living with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, recover and avoid future re-traumatization. So it's going to be a really packed day. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, and even though we're talking about trauma and PTSD and it's a heavy topic, we have a lot of interaction planned, and we're hoping it'll be fun, too. Um, and we're, our real goal is to break down the silence that surrounds this topic and to encourage people to begin to talk to one another, to support one another so that they're not so isolated and alone. Well, it sounds like a terrific session, a terrific workshop, and uh, our listeners should know that um, if they're not able to join us in Norfolk, uh, we do have a follow-up to this podcast and to the um, the workshop in Norfolk. We're going to be doing a live web chat on September 24th with Walter, and we're really looking forward to that. Uh, I guess in the interim, any final words of wisdom for our listeners before we sign off? in the last uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, I just hope to see folks at the conference. The more the merrier and we're hoping that you'll come out and join us and be a part of the uh, conversation. Well, I hope so too, Laura. This has been an absolute pleasure. I think you've really uh, shed some light on the topic that our our listeners are going to be very interested in. And I just want to thank you again for for being on our podcast today. My pleasure, Aaron. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. This concludes the DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.